People love lists. We especially love lists if they're uh, things that can help us to hack life. Now, do you know what a hack is? It's short for life hack, and it's a tip, a, a, a trick, a few simple steps that can help you do something that's seemingly challenging and make it more achievable or attainable by following this just simple trick. And so you get these targeted social media ads saying, here's the three tips to losing weight in your 30s. Here's the five things to do to remember to hit your drive longer and straighter. These are the, this is the advice to follow to cook gourmet meals in 30 minutes. Here's the three keys to deepening your friendships. This is the list of the things great moms do every day. And so you scroll through and you can click the link and you can see what the tips or the hacks are, or more likely you can pay money to get access to what the tips or the hacks are. Sometimes we adopt them, we try them out for a while, but typically they don't last. We go back to our other ways. But what these hacks, what these life improvement strategies tell us is that they're hitting on a core part of the human experience that we feel like we're lacking something. Deep down we know we're not good enough. Good enough parents, spouse, employee, citizen, neighbor, cook, golfer, gardener, knitter, whatever it is. We compare ourselves to the projected image of what other people do who are better at this than me, and then we look for something simple, some just little trick, some little tip that I can do to get what they have. And once I get that, then maybe, just maybe, I won't feel like a failure. Maybe I'll feel self-assured, and I'll be confident. Well, in case you haven't tried these life hacks or these tips in the past, I'll save you the trouble from my own experience. Here's what happens to me. I take on these tips, these tricks. I put them in place. They're simple, easy, time-saving. They should be foolproof. And then I use those to address something I feel like I'm a failure at in my life. And guess what? I fail at even the tips and the tricks. <laughs> so now I'm a double failure because I'm already bad at this, and now even the easy steps I can't seem to stick to, so then I'm left feeling even more guilty and like there's no hope. So what are we to do? Well, the reality is we're so susceptible to lists that we can make anything a list of to-dos, even the life of faith. You need to turn in your pledge card. You need to get dressed and get to worship. You know, I really ought to read my Bible more. I need to learn how to pray better each day. And you know all those injustices and poverties in the world. We can't ignore those. Those need to be confronted and addressed. Our source for all this list-making in the community of faith, of course, goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, which we so often treat like the ten hacks to get us to God. Follow these ten easy steps, and you can practice perfect faithfulness. But if we treat our life in the church like we've joined a group of rule followers who, by following these tips, these tricks, can achieve a more meaningful or whole existence, we are perverting the entire mission of the faith. Our life does not begin with rules. Our life 
does not begin even with our own sense of lacking something. Our life begins with grace. See, the Israelite people um, cry out to God, and God responds, asking nothing from them, but comes and says, I'm going to free you from this slavery in Egypt. God raises up shepherd Moses to confront the Pharaoh, to declare that the people will be freed. God sends signs and plagues and parts Red Sea waters and provides food in the wilderness and guides them to the mountain of God's presence. God is not obligated to do any of those things, and yet God does them. And God doesn't demand anything from the people to prove that they deserve this provision from God. But no sooner do they get to that mountain, Moses ascends, than the people turn away from this God who has rescued them. And they decide, while Moses is gone, to melt their earrings and to make a calf out of gold and bow down to that instead of the God who has saved them. They want a God they can touch, a God they can control, a God who is valuable by the standards of value that they understand. Moses sees the idolatry as he descends the mountain with the two stone tablets of these instructions that God has given him to mature their relationship together, and Moses shatters those stone tablets. And this is a critical moment in our story, a critical revelation of who God is. We have to wonder at this moment if we're dealing with a bait-and-switch God. So we've already seen in God freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt that God's power, God's love, comes without anyone having to earn it first. That makes God's love very different than how we show love as human beings, where we are guarded with our love. You've got to show that you've earned my love before I'll offer it. But there's a second kind of love that is a human love, where we will pour out our generosity, our kindness, our affections to another person. We'll initiate all of that first, But secretly, we expect some kind of payback for all of our efforts. And it looks in this story like perhaps that's how God acts. God and Moses have a chat. And God says to Moses, look, I'm going to honor my promise to you. I'm going to send an angel with you. They're going to drive the Canaanites out of the promised land. You'll be able to enter it, but then look, you're going to be on your own after that. I just, I can't do this with these people anymore. But Moses, relentless Moses, insists that God not be like people. No initial rules to follow in order to prove we matter. No bait and switch. I need you to be different. I need you to be holy. I need you to be a God other than a God we could fashion for ourselves. So in this moment, we get two rock images to pay attention to. That is our series in these weeks, after all. So first God says, okay, my glory is going to pass by, but yes, you are correct. 
I am entirely beyond your comprehension. You can only get a partial view of me or else you'll die. So go in this cleft, this cave, this carved out place in the rock, and there you will be granted a partial view of my glory. Now this very moment is God's grace showing forth for Moses. God carves out a place where Moses can encounter the Holy One, but still maintains God's unique position as beyond all human comprehension. This is the mystery. This is the paradox. God condescends to Moses without sacrificing God's integrity. God remains free while also expressing love, which is actually what makes God's glory inaccessible. God chooses to love. God doesn't have to love. And then God's love does not manipulate or control. God is love. Try as we might as human beings, that love is beyond us. Our love is limited, tinged with goals and efforts and personal needs. Sometimes we're aware of those. Oftentimes we're not even aware of what those are. This is why Moses, at best, can peer out at the glory of God through the cleft in the rock. Because this love beyond human comprehension to experience it fully would be to be destroyed by it. But God creates an avenue, a cleft, where Moses can experience God's presence in a way that we can handle. And then the second image of the rock comes after the glory passes by. God makes a second draft of the instructions for relationship between God and the people. And this, again, is grace. God is coming in a way that people can experience, in a way that they can live through. This is not a list of ten things to do for maximizing happiness. It's a manifestation of the grace of God that is possible only because of the presence of God making it so. That's why Moses insists we need your presence to go with us because we're hopeless if all we've got is a list. So the rules of the commandments are only possible because God doesn't work with expectation and fear of punishment upon Israel. Instead, God acts with grace and mercy in order to be present and with them and us. There is no higher divine being than that of the gracious God, writes Karl Barth. There is no higher divine holiness than that which he shows in being merciful and forgiving sins. Grace defines God. It is not an attribute of God. It is not a here today, gone tomorrow thing. Grace is God's manifestation. Love is God's character. And that grace precedes 
our obedience. Grace and holy presence is God's entire identity, God's only project. It's not manipulation or control, restriction, progress, improvement. If those are the things we think of when we think of God, then we haven't come to the place yet of trusting the one who puts the cleft in the rock and carves the commandments on the tablets as a way to guide and strengthen our relationship. We're still struggling with a God that we've made than the other God who we meet in this word today, this God who shatters all expectations. So it's no wonder in the church, as Christians, as people in the world, that we struggle to embody this incredible message. Love without expectations. Love that doesn't manipulate or expire. A promise to remain faithful even when a people deny and reject you. A never-ending, never-failing faithfulness. That is beyond us to embody. It can only be embodied by the one who was denied and rejected by all who knew him loved them into death, and rose in new life for them and for us. And that one, Jesus Christ, invites us to lay down that heavy burden of our life. He is the one who tears up the list no more hacks, no more expectations, no more manipulation. It's all grace. And y'all, that is an impossible way to live. But we're here today because we believe in a God who makes the impossible possible.